This is God's word, and, and uh, in this chapter we've seen Paul writing to the church in Corinth. He's had to uh, address the fact that there are some opponents there, and he's got to explain to it how the ministry of God's word works to deal with those who disagree. And in my introduction, I hope to tie it in to Palm Sunday. But let's read the verses first. I'd like to start in verse 1 and read through verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. This is God's word. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless it to all who read, hear, believe, and obey. I mentioned that I see in our text a a, a connection to our celebration of Palm Sunday and And sometimes when we come to these wonderful dates on the church calendar, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday, we we preach particularly passages about that event. But here I thought we would continue our expositions and still tie in to the Palm Sunday event, at least by way of introduction. We heard earlier from Luke 19 that was read in the service, Luke's account of the entry into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. And you'll notice that in that triumphal entry, you have scripture being fulfilled from Zechariah 9. And you see the miracle working Messiah from Galilee arriving. And as he comes down the Mount of Olives across the the valley and then up into the entrance of the city of David, Jerusalem on the hill, people are celebrating. And they're not just celebrating, they are worshiping this individual. A Jew does not worship another person. Jews worship God alone. But these believers, these disciples would not keep silent. They saw Jesus as the king. And so they cried out, uh, uh, blessed be this king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They were worshiping Jesus as the anointed Messiah. Fulfilling scripture. And they were going on record publicly, these disciples. Many were from Galilee and they were coming as visitors into the city. It was also the Passover season. But many in the city came out to greet him. And they're waving palms and setting down cloaks because of this, oh, he's more than a VIP, Messiah, the promised one, the son of God. And yet, at that same time, as God was making clear, this is my son, my anointed one, There were those who wanted to silence the believer's joy. 
There were some there that should have known better, knowing the scriptures, who said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. They did not call him king. Hey, rabbi, get a hold of your people. They're taking this too far. Shut them up. They did not see Christ. They saw a simple rabbi from Galilee and they opposed. They would not consider his claims. They would not look at the signs he did that testified of him. They did not heed the authority with which he spoke. He could answer all their questions and had. But they opposed They had built a wall of disbelief. They did not want to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So they say, knock it off. But Jesus answered, as Luke reports it, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is as evident to all creation as can be. I am he. And what these people are doing is good and right to worship me, to receive me, to honor me. Today, today the truth about Jesus is the same. He is the risen son of God. He went to Jerusalem as king. He died as a substitute for us. The Passover lamb who was slain. He was laid in the tomb, and on the third day, as Scripture prophesied, as he prophesied, he rose from the dead with power. And in his resurrected body appeared not only to the disciples, but to guards and up to 500 witnesses that it was Jesus. Scarred as he was from his crucifixion, but it was this same Jesus who was alive and is alive today. The truth about Jesus still stands And the opposition to Jesus still is around. We'll meet with people that just won't believe. They won't look at the evidence. They think the Bible's filled with contradictions. They think it's been changed. Or uh, they, they, they can't believe what they think it says. And they won't look at the evidence. They won't hear the testimony of those whose lives have been changed. I have met the risen Christ. I'm born again. And I won't be quiet. We are called to bear witness to our Lord Jesus Christ. You shall be my witnesses, he said. We are called to give an account of the hope within us. Peter, one of those eyewitnesses, was never again the same. And he was as bold in his preaching as he had been in his following of Christ. In 1 Peter 3.15, he says to us, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And that's what Paul is saying here as he writes to these Corinthians. Among whom were some opponents to the gospel. And he writes by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. To persuade them, to challenge them, to call them into a right standing, not to keep putting up barriers. So I see a connection here 
And I, I think we do well to study what God's word says about how we, we take the thinking of men captive. How do we advance the gospel in the face of opposition? Sometimes within the church and certainly within the culture. And these two verses, following on verse 4, was last Sunday. If you missed that, it's still recorded and available, I believe. Verse 4 had made that wonderful declaration. The weapons of our warfare, the tools of our trade, Paul is saying. How we engage are not of the flesh. They're not of this world. They're not common to human wisdom and ways but have divine power to destroy stronghold. We have spiritual tools and weapons at our disposal, primarily among them the truth of God's word, God's word spoken, God's word fulfilled, God's word which is powerful. Here in verses 5 and 6, it's kind of the second part to what we're looking at, he goes on to say that we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. So he's describing this process. Paul will not be quiet. And neither should we. And in these two verses there are actually three parallel participles. There we go. That, that give us some sense of structure. I, you know, the preacher often has three points. It's a, it's a wonderful rhetorical structure. But here there are three participles. There's the tearing down, there's the taking captive, and the being ready. So those give some structure to what we want to say today. We'll focus primarily on the first two. The tearing down. We destroy arguments. It's a present participle, meaning it's still going on. We are and continue as Christians to tear down these arguments and these lofty opinions raised against God. And I've given this first heading the term tactical truth. Paul's using military terms, so I think tactical is a military term. We think of tactics and whether you play chess and learn how those pieces can exert their influence on a chessboard or you just follow a conversation and you hear what someone is saying and claiming and you think of your response, the truth needs to be tactically deployed because it is the truth of God that will take down human pretenses. As we consider the tactical truth in this taking down, let's first look at this wall of opposition. What is it? Paul describes it here in verse 5 and he puts words to it. He says, arguments, and every lofty opinion. That's what it says in the ESV translation of the Greek. Arguments and every lofty opinion. First, arguments, those were the the verbal obstacles and opposition. They were certainly in abundance at Corinth. People in Corinth could talk and talk a lot, and they were talking down Paul. They were talking down the gospel and even talking down Christ. When we keep reading into chapter 11, we'll see how serious it is. The Satan himself was at work stirring up the talk. These arguments, it's a simple word uh, related to the word logos, uh, the use of words. These verbal onslaughts and obstacles uh, could be described, as one scholar did, as any human theory raised up against the knowledge of the truth. Have you ever heard a human theory raised up against the knowledge of the truth? Oh, yes. 
Men always try to find some answer, some explanation. Oh, yeah, we can explain away the resurrection. Yeah, people thought they saw Jesus because they were hallucinating in their grief. Oh, yeah, people uh, think Jesus uh, is still alive today. But, and people have their theories. And they also have theories against other aspects of Christianity. There is no such thing as moral absolutes, they say, with absolute conviction. These oppositions, these arguments create a wall against the knowledge of the truth. We'll come back to the knowledge part. Um, And every lofty opinion, that's a picturesque phrase. And in fact, it it means any elevated structure. Um, And so Paul could be actually using the terminology of of making a bulwark or a wall or a redoubt. Uh, Some of you military guys might know the, the other words for making these defensive mounds of earth behind which you're safe. Or in Scotland, they build castles. And from the castle, you could be safe and defend against your enemy, and you'd have narrow windows to shoot your arrows through. Elevated, secure, high ground makes military sense. Well, that's what men in their opposition to God have done. They've created not just physical structures, but lofty opinions. The King James takes this phrase and says, every high thing The RSV says every proud obstacle. Uh, The NASB says every lofty thing. And the NIV says every pretension. I think here the the translations agree that this is something concocted by men that's erected to keep God at bay. Pretensions is a pretty good word. Because we often think of something being concocted and erected. The American theologian Charles Hodge says, uh, defining uh, these imaginations in every high thing, he says it exalts itself against the knowledge of God. He calls them opinions or convictions of those who set themselves and the deductions of their reasonings against the truth of God. They just don't want to believe it. They have their own presuppositions. There are deists who might say, oh, yes, God exists, but we can't know him. And you can't say anything absolutely about him. James Denny uh, said that these Corinthians had notions of their own about how a church should be regulated. But they were wild, undisciplined, disorderly notions. And in the absence of the apostle, they were experimenting with them freely. And that's not good. So Paul's writing a letter saying, you can't indulge these thoughts. You can't say, oh, we're filled with grace so we can have an incestuous marriage or it's okay to do that and tolerate this. You you just got to pull it back in and deal in the truth. These lofty opinions. Then he goes on to say, Paul knew from experience that men fortify themselves against God. And he describes it. He says, They try to find impregnable positions in which they may defy him and live their own life. Human nature, he says, instinctively puts itself on guard. And you cannot pass that guard, as Paul was well aware, with the weapons furnished by the flesh. You need better weapons. Postmodernism has erected its own walls. And it says it's, it's not even possible to know uh, objective truth and knowledge. We can't know something for certain. 
especially when it comes to moral attributes. These are pretensions. We can know. And truth is that which aligns with reality and history. And God's word presents that to us. Notice as Paul says what, uh, what is to be uh, torn down, this wall of opposition, it's not tearing down the people, it's tearing down the thinking, the worldview, the delusional thoughts. Because Paul's aim is to win those people, to see those people saved. Those are the walls. And the work of tearing it down. How is that work conducted? We need to spend a couple minutes on this. Uh, The term here, again, tearing down, as I said, it's a present tense. It's a continual action, not only in the apostles' day, but ever since the church age has to continually fight falsehoods when they crop up and unbelief in every generation. The term for physically taking something down is what we have here. It's a common term. It can mean... And it was used uh, when they took Jesus down from the cross. Tearing down, taking down. It's used in Luke 1, 52 for the toppling of a king. If you remember Mary's song as she uh, wondered what the coming Messiah might do. In Mary's song she said, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. It's a messianic work. But it's the Christian's work as well. Not just to take down, but to to tear down, to to break down, to destroy. That's what the context demands here. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, we certainly have the general arsenal of God's word. We have truth. We need to walk in integrity with that truth. We need to talk honestly and humbly uh, with faithfulness to God, dependence upon his Holy Spirit. We have that general arsenal. But I think there are two specific tactics here for tearing down these obstacles. And, and the first is, is obvious. We need to clear away these walls and we need to dispel the darkness, the taking down. Let's remove that. Let's get some light in here. And sometimes you have to do it brick by brick, pulling away at the foundations. We need to probe what people are thinking. They erect this pretense and you say, why do you believe that? Or why is that uh, an objective truth to you when you won't acknowledge other evidences? We chip away brick by brick and clear away the walls and the darkness. I want to commend again, it's been a couple of years, uh, Greg Kukul has written a book called Tactics, a game plan for discussing your Christian convictions. And there's nothing mean-spirited in this book. It's a beautiful and gentle book about engaging in conversations. And he shares one conversation that I think is worth sharing with you because it illustrates how we can engage and and dispel the darkness and begin disassembling this wall so that we can get to the person with the good news. We can just pull the bricks out one by one, even by asking questions. Here's here's one exchange, and it, it just so happens, he says, he was on vacation in Wisconsin. He says, my wife and I stopped at the one-hour photo in town. I noticed the woman helping us had a large pentagram, a five-pointed star, generally associated with the occult, dangling from her neck. Does that star have any religious significance, I asked, pointing to the pendant, or is it just jewelry? A question. 
Yes, it has religious significance, she answered. The five points stand for the earth, wind, fire, water, and spirit. And she added, I'm a pagan. My wife, he says, caught off guard by the woman's candor, couldn't suppress a laugh, then quickly apologized. I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be rude. It's, it's just that I've never heard anyone actually admit that right out, that they were a pagan, she explained. She knew the term only as a pejorative used by friends yelling at others. So you're a Wiccan, Greg asked. She nodded. Yes, she was a witch. It's an earth religion, the woman explained. Like Native Americans, we respect all life. Here comes another question. If you respect all life, then I suppose you're pro-life on the abortion issue. She shook her head. No, actually, I'm not. I'm pro-choice. I was surprised. Isn't that an unusual position for someone in Wicca to take? I mean, since you're committed to respecting all life. You're right. It is odd, she admitted, then quickly qualified herself. I know I could never do that. I mean, I could never kill a baby. I wouldn't do anything to hurt anyone else because it might come back on me. Now, this was a remarkable turn in the conversation for two reasons, Greg says. First, notice the word she used describing abortion. By her own admission, abortion was baby killing. She already knew it. She had just offered a tremendous leg up in the discussion. I was not going to turn it down. From then on, I abandoned the word abortion. It would be baby killing it all. So second, she, um, so he says, so maybe you wouldn't do anything to hurt a baby, but other people would, I countered. Shouldn't we do something to stop them from killing babies? I think women should have a choice, she countered without thinking. And again, see how people just throw up these pretensions that they've heard, they repeat, to get the Christians to shut up. But he asks about that. Generally, statements like women should have a choice are meaningless as they stand. Like the statement, I have a right to take. Uh, um, The claim requires an object. Choose what? Take what? No one has an open-ended right to choose. People only have the right to choose particular things. In this case, there's no ambiguity. The woman had already identified the choice, baby killing, to use her words. Do you mean that women should have the choice to kill their own babies? Well, she thought for a moment, I think all things should be taken into consideration on the question. Okay, what considerations would make it right to kill a baby? The example. You see that with questions, gently engaging those pretensions, those slogans that often stop Christians in their tracks, We can dismantle that wall. And what do we ask about? What we ask in pursuit of the truth. A choice to do what? Is it right to kill that baby? And and we pursue that. Or when people dismiss the claims of Jesus. Or says all religions are the same. All we have to do is ask how are they the same? And and probe and say do you know the exclusive claim of Jesus? No one comes to the Father but by me. People in their rebellion and their ignorance throw up these pretenses. And armed with the truth, we can see them torn down. So clear away the walls is the first answer of how we do that. And and, and Greg Kukul goes on to describe that as the Columbo technique. We just keep asking question after question with with a humble, inquiring mind. Not to be combative. 
because many are captive to a lie. And then, of course, the work of tearing down as the darkness dispels, we have to focus others on the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice Paul says that these uh, obstacles are raised against the knowledge of God. Well, that's very broad. The knowledge of God in creation, the image of God in human beings, the sanctity of life, but very specifically, the image of God in Jesus Christ. Earlier in this letter, chapter 4, in verse 6, Paul had said this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How does God make himself known? Through Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He was the exact imprint, Hebrews 1 says, of the Father in heaven. So we need people to begin to consider Christ, not just to to wave pretenses and to talk in abstractions. Who was Jesus then? Was he a liar? A lunatic? Or was he Lord? In Jesus, we see the knowledge of God made plain. Looking Jesus in the face, says one preacher, is the way to demolish shoddy arguments and puffed up pretensions. Lack of clear contact with reality leaves us prey to demons of our culture. Whereas knowledge of God in the face of Christ is the basis of every other true knowledge and is the ground of liberation from fear of the world and controlled by its attitudes. Draw men and women to consider Christ. Not their uh, mock-up of him or the effigy of him which they or the straw man Jesus, but the real deal. Take them to the scriptures. And that will tear down those arguments and obstacles. And specifically, as you get others to consider Christ, talk about why he came, talk about the historical events. No one really denies that there was a man named Jesus who was crucified. Why did he die? Ask the questions. Lead them to the historical information and the empty tomb. And then combine that with what else the New Testament tells us the purpose of that death, the purpose and power of that resurrection. Son of God slain for us. That's how we bring down those obstacles. And notice here with this first uh, point, uh, the phrase every, the, the modification every appears. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. You know the word every appears in each of the three points of these two verses? And we're going to emphasize that. Every lofty opinion. We can engage. There, there, there isn't a, a silver bullet that will do us in, that will, that will confound the people of God and the work of his Holy Spirit. Every lofty opinion can be answered. And I think that points us to the sufficiency of the scriptures, the sufficiency of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. Peter wrote about that. Uh, As individuals, we have everything we need for life and godliness, and we have reasons to hope in Christ, and we're told to give an account of those reasons and to do it with gentleness. We have what we need. 
This second heading I call transformative truth because Paul moves on from the destroying and the clearing away work of verse 5, the first part, and he continues and he says, and take every thought captive. It's a participle, taking every thought captive. That's the ongoing work of the gospel, taking every thought captive. In In the military, when the walls come down, then you can enter and round up the soldiers and the citizens. We're taking thoughts captive. We're aiming to take men captive and souls captive to the gospel. This verb about captivity was used by Paul back in Romans 7, talking about when he was an unbeliever, he was held captive by sin. That struggle, if you've read Romans 7, you know the struggle is real, and it continues on until God's sanctifying work frees us. Taking men captive. Here, I I think it points to being converted and having God's law written on your heart. To be marked as belonging to God. To be taken captive. That's the end aim here. Kent Hughes says Christ did not simply help people to think holy thoughts. But as D.A. Carson also says, their mental structures, their plans and schemes are taken over and transformed as they come to a new allegiance. Paul wrote about this earlier in chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. It is taking you captive and you belong to Christ. If he has set you free, if he has liberated you from the lies and pretensions you once believed. I remember that day, that summer day when I awoke knowing Christ and, and felt freed from the, the things that had that kept me from him and Uh, justifying my own sin and my own way of living and now loving Christ. What freedom. I was joyfully enlisted in the cause of Christ. Saul of Tarsus was once set against persecuting Christians and this man from Galilee. And by the power of God, Saul of Tarsus was stopped on the Damascus Road. And by the power of God, his his, uh, uh, lofty perceptions of who Jesus were were taken away as he faced the risen Christ. And he was changed and he was taken captive and was enlisted and became the Apostle Paul. We're taken captive to obey Christ. Do you see that here in the scriptures? And take every thought captive to obey Christ or for Christ. The work men do of of understanding the world and and trying to carve out a, a hiding place for them in rebellion. All those efforts are now taken and deployed in the service of Christ. To obey Christ. I was convicted when I read what Paul Barnett said about preaching At this point, he said, all preaching fails. He had my attention. All preaching fails if it does not bring the claims of the lordship of Christ and his saving power into the clearest focus. That's what Paul had done at Corinth. We preach Christ and him crucified. Paul didn't dabble in a lot of other speculations. He didn't try to use rhetorical flourishes to win men. But by the power of God, he presented the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Chapter 4, he said, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Christ is Lord. That's not just repeating his title. That's a call to obedience. The one who saves is also the Lord of heaven and earth. You can't use Jesus just as your get out of hell card without bowing to Jesus as your Lord, the Lord of your life. They're one and the same. Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. So as we take away the, the, the safety of men in their rebellion and they're exposed, the, the preaching of God's word, their, their guilt is made known and we share the gospel and show them Christ, they're not only saved, but they're taken captive. They're enlisted in the cause of Christ and their lives are directed to obey Christ. Notice again, with this second point, taking every thought captive, the word Every, every thought captive. When Paul first wrote to the Corinthians, he reminded them very plainly, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, he writes to the professing Christians in Corinth. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Every thought captive. Whereas Paul would write to the Romans. Brothers, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices unto God. This is not just a a convincing task and a gospel converting task. This is a building disciples and servants of Christ task that the church has. It is a tactical truth and it is a transformative truth. This good news of an empty tomb and of forgiveness in Christ. But finally, I want to say it's also a consequential truth. Because there's this third participle, this phrase in verse 6. There's, there's some oddness to it in our reading in the English, but uh, this is God's word. Let's see what it says. Verse 6, Paul's saying, being ready to punish every disobedience. And then he makes a temporal reference when your obedience is complete. What is verse 6 telling us? He's telling us that there are consequences to this truth. There are consequences to this struggle. If you're still in rebellion, if you're still rejecting the gospel and rejecting the truth about Jesus, you will be punished. There is punishment coming for every disobedience. What did I disobey? The gospel. Who did I disrespect? The Lord. The Lord Jesus. God the Father. They're resisting the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I am ready. He said earlier, I don't want to have to be bold when I come, but I am ready. Because he's living his own life captive to Christ. And he's dealing in truth. And he will obey the Lord who said, make this plain. Punish disobedience. So Paul as an apostle, as a church leader, would do that. His readiness, but it was with meekness. 
Paul had written to Titus, you know, the book of Titus in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there. But in Titus, Paul reminds him, this is why I left you in Crete. Titus was the one sent to Crete, that island country, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. There is order and structure and authority in the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives leaders to the church to help the flock see that there are consequences to disobedience and obedience. Peter would write about that in 1 Peter 5. Shepherds, not domineering, preach this truth. Live as an example of this truth. Paul had a readiness and he speaks very clearly about disobedience and obedience here. Many take this to be an implicit warning. Why remind someone that uh, disobedience was looming? Why bring this up? Well, it's a warning. Don't forget, there's going to be an accounting. That's the way we work. What does it mean if a king arrives and you acclaim him as king? Aren't there consequences to that? If he is king, you owe your allegiance. The implicit warning for those in Corinth is there for us as well. And Paul waits, he says, when your obedience is complete. He's not anxious to bring this about. Charles Hodge again brings that point to bear. He says, Paul would not resort to severity until all other means had failed, until it had been fully manifest who among the Corinthians would submit to God and who would persist in their disobedience. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, Peter tells us. Humble yourselves that he may exalt you. Palm Sunday is a historic day. And Jesus, as king, entered Jerusalem. Jesus is still king and calls for our allegiance to him and to his gospel to no longer live for ourselves, but for him who loved us and gave himself for us. Do you accept Jesus? Do you acknowledge him as Savior and Lord? And here in verse 6, I remind you, the word every appears for a third time. The things we're talking about cover all circumstances and have vast applications every disobedience no one will be without excuse and the Corinthians heard that and were warned when Paul comes he's going to do some church discipline if necessary and the people that are are wrong are going to get dealt with we don't have to worry about Paul coming to Clifton Park Paul's already in heaven but Jesus is alive and well and Jesus said I'm coming back And Jesus will call for an accounting from his people. Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 12 these things. I tell you, said Jesus, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. 
This is a king. He has rights and authority. He must be obeyed. He must be believed. I remember the words of Peter when he he was challenged as Jesus asserted his lordship more and more. uh, And people were leaving. Jesus says, Peter, are you leaving too? And he says, Lord, to whom else shall I go? You alone have the words of life. He is Savior. He is Lord. And he summons us to believe and obey. Palm Sunday isn't just about, woo-hoo, wave some plants around. It's about the person. Who is this? And if we don't acknowledge him, all nature will testify against us who he is. I have a couple of closing exhortations. Let me get those out. First is right on the heels of this challenge. Be ready yourselves and be right with God when Christ returns. Paul was preparing the Corinthians by this sermon. God is summoning us to be prepared, not just to celebrate Palm Sunday, but for the second coming of Christ with power, with angels. Palms won't cut it. The very clouds of glory will surround Christ and precede him in his entrance into the world. Read First and Second Thessalonians. Study what the Bible says about the return of Christ. Every eye will see him. There'll be no mistaking it. Be ready and right when Christ returns. A second application is this, and this is for those of tender heart. Paul says we take every thought captive to obey Christ. I encourage you to take your own thoughts captive to obey Christ. Take your doubts. Take your fears. Take your worries and anxieties. I love what Peter wrote, 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. And he uses the word anxieties. Cast all your anxieties on him for he is anxious over you. Take your own thoughts captive. If Christ loved you and died for you and saved you and now is your Lord, trust him. Take your thinking to him when you're confused or confounded or despairing. Don't listen just to yourself. Don't listen to the accuser, the father of lies. He may speak kernels of truth, but they're wrapped in falsehood. And they're not there to help you. Take every one of your own thoughts captive to Christ. Pray about it. Get the Lord's help with your thinking. Douglas Kelly, lecturing a couple decades ago, said, constantly focusing on our own identity in the risen Lord, rather than wasting energy in the attempt to keep abreast of ever-shifting cultural styles, trends, and opinions, is part of the battle we wage to bring every thought into captivity to Christ. Remember who you are in Christ, a new creation. And the final application here is the main point of the text. Do not fear the walls of opposition the world will erect to Christ. Don't feel like you're surrounded and and there's no way out and the culture continues to to stand against the truth and says crazy things, whether it be about gender or this or that. 
the world can put up its pretenses, its slogans, and deny the truth and the reality of history. But every argument, every lofty opinion will fall before the truth of God, if not now, in the last day. Oh, remember the grand language of Romans chapter 8, and with this I end. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, and here's our term, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, Romans 8, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thanks be to God for the gift of his Son, our Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Fathers, we've studied this New Testament letter and studied it in the light of Palm Sunday. I pray that you would encourage your people, give us joy in the person of Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us, but also give us confidence not to shirk back, but be used of God with the help of the Spirit and your word to take every thought captive. May we not keep silent But may we ask questions at least and probe and present Christ to a dying world. We ask your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.